we are going to do something a little different this morning, not terribly different. If you were visiting with us or if you haven't been here for some time, we have been in the Gospel of John systematically making our way through each chapter and each verse, and we are continuing to do that this morning. We ended last week with verse 21, and we're picking up this week with verse 22. But I want to look at this passage this morning and focus on something maybe a little bit different that might not be um, immediately seen from the passage. I want to focus this morning on biblical application, on Bible application, how Scripture, how the biblical truths of the Word of God are applied to our lives. And I want to look at that this morning, partly because I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and this might have something to do with the fact that we've been on Sunday evenings going through the series on how to read the Bible, and applying Scripture to our lives is a necessary part of it. It's a necessary part of reading and interpreting Scripture rightly, and uh, there's all kinds of dangers when it comes to applying Scripture. We can, we can misapply Scripture. We can confine the application of the Bible in a, in a, in a very um, limited sense. So what I want to do this morning is as we go through this text and as we see John the Baptist ministering to his disciples and addressing a matter of sin within their own lives that is that is coming out, as we will see, I want to focus in particular on how John is using biblical truth to apply uh, to the situation that his disciples are in. So let me begin by reading our text this morning, and we'll begin in verse 22 and go down to verse 30. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anan near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. 
He must increase, but I must decrease. To pray with me. Father, we desire to be a people who are completely confident in the authority of your word and completely confident in the sufficiency and the power of your word to speak to our lives and to our hearts even now as it has done before. Father, we desire to be a people who are wise with Scripture and who are able to minister to one another as well as to our neighbors and to those in the world that we regularly come in contact with. We desire, Lord, to be wise with Scripture and to be able to speak gospel truths into their lives, to lead them to a saving knowledge of Christ. So, Father, I pray that this morning as we see Your servant, John the Baptist, drawing the attention of His disciples away from their pettiness and towards the glory of God and Christ, Father, I pray that we would be able to emulate and to follow this very practice of using Scripture in wise and winsome ways to draw people's attention to Your glory. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how the Bible, this ancient book, written over 2,000 years ago, over a span of 2,000 years itself, how this book applies to life in the modern age is a question that if you are a Christian and you are seeking to live faithfully and seeking to honor God, you have to and you will inevitably at some point ask, how does this ancient word apply to modern life? How is the Bible applicable to a woman who is suffering from postpartum depression? What does it say to her? How is it applicable to the soldier who has returned and who is now suffering from PTSD? Does it have anything to say to him? How is it applicable to the young girl who is constantly cutting herself? Does it say anything to her? For her? How does it apply to a marriage that is crumbling because a husband is gambling all of his family's money away. What does it say to them? Does it have anything to say to the man who has an obsessive compulsive disorder, who will not drive on any street that is numbered with an odd number? He will only drive on a street that is numbered with an even number. That's a real case. I just read of that. I'll tell you a little bit more about it in just a second. But someone suffering from an obsessive compulsive disorder, these behaviors that are 
consuming them. Does Scripture have anything to say to that man? For many, Bible application is about finding the imperatives in Scripture that directly address a present problem, memorizing them, perhaps, and then just saying, okay, I have to obey this. That's the extent of much biblical application. So, for example, someone engaged in some kind of sexual immorality goes to 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And they say, okay, this is, this is a clear command of Scripture. I'm going to obey it. No more immorality. That's how, for many, Bible application works. It's all about having some kind of command that says you shall do this or you shall not do that. But then, of course, the Christian soon discovers that most commands in Scripture do not directly address the vast majority of situations and problems in modern life. And even ancient life, for that matter. So for many, when it comes to things like an obsessive-compulsive disorder, they don't find any specific verses speaking directly to this issue. And so the assumption is made that the Bible has very little, if anything, to say to that man or that woman. What then becomes the solution? Well, we have to, out of necessity, turn to things like modern psychology or therapy or even medication. Scripture doesn't appear to have anything to say to this, and so we have to go outside of it. That's normally the route that's taken. But friends, Bible application is just not that limited. It's far more than that. It's not confined to a list of imperatives. It's not as though, since there's no verse that says, now Jesus told a certain parable about a man with OCD. It's not as though, because that verse is not there, Scripture has nothing to say to that man. And it's not as though, perhaps more importantly, that Scripture doesn't have the remedy for that man's problem. Indeed, Scripture does speak to that situation, and Scripture, more importantly, has the solution and the power and the remedy. It might just not come in the form of a simple chapter and verse. It might be that there are broader theological truths that are needed. It might be that the heart is needing to be addressed on a far deeper level than a simple command can provide. Now, I've referred to this person with OCD a couple of times as an example because, like I said, I just 
read a case about a man who had been diagnosed with a severe case of obsessive-compulsive disorder. And one of the things he was doing, one of his behaviors was, was what I mentioned. He would not drive on any street that was Third Street South or Fifth Street South. He would only go on even-numbered streets. Strange, bizarre, right? He had seen therapists. He had taken medication. And nothing was working. Things were just getting worse. His behaviors were becoming more obsessive. Just to skip to the end of the story, he eventually started meeting with a Christian. And the Christian's only solution, and the only way that he was equipped, was with the Bible. It was the only thing he had. Over the course of many meetings between the Christian and this man, it became clear that the obsessive-compulsive behaviors the man was displaying were merely outward indications of a deeper, more spiritual problem within his heart. went far deeper than what was observable. The man was frequently battling sexual lust in his heart. He was battling with despair, hopelessness. He was battling with shame and guilt. And for a long time, what he had done to deal with these issues was to impose punishments on himself to atone for the things he felt guilty for. And one of them was if he had some immoral thought in his heart, he would punish himself by not driving on certain roads to make his routes more difficult, to make his life more difficult as a way to deter him from this sin problem he was having. And he did this for many, many years, and it eventually just became ingrained within his life. So the punishments had developed into these outward, obsessive, compulsive Behaviors, but his true problem was a lustful heart. And his true problem was despair and hopelessness. And his true problem was in attempting to atone for his own works himself. And friends, these are problems. These are problems which only the gospel can address. These are things that only the power of the Word of God can set a person free from. And that's what happened. The Christian regularly counseled the man from the Word of God. He showed him the power of the Gospel to free a person from enslavement to sin. He showed him the hope of God's grace to answer his hopelessness and his depression. And he showed him the true and only lasting eternal atonement that is found in the work of Christ. And as they continued to meet with each other, and this 
Christian began to counsel him from the Word of God with all of these beautiful truths, the man's heart was confronted with the Gospel, and as it was, it began to change from within. And over time, his obsessive-compulsive behaviors were no more. So by the power of the Gospel, the man was renewed from the inside, and his outward behaviors were things he was now free from. That, friends, is how true biblical application works. The grand theological truths of Scripture, the majestic God and His attributes, the glory of Christ, the story of God's plan of redemption, the renewing power of His Gospel, all of these beautiful truths are brought to bear in our hearts. And as they are brought to bear in our hearts, our hearts and minds begin to be renewed. And the sins that so easily entangle us lose their beauty. And we are free. This kind of Bible application is what we see John the Baptist doing in our text this morning. The context is that sometime after Jesus finished his dialogue with Nicodemus, he and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and continued their ministry there. At the same time, as we read, John the Baptist was continuing his preaching and baptizing ministry at a place called Anan. And at some point, we are told, the disciples of John the Baptist get into a debate it's not just a discussion, it's, it's a debate. It's probably somewhat of a heated exchange going back and forth between his disciples and another Jew over the issue of purification. We don't know exactly what the contents of this debate was, but it possibly had something to do with the effectiveness of John the Baptist's baptism. So we already saw in chapter 1, verse 25, that some of the Jews were challenging John's authority to baptize. It was in verse 25. We saw that John had denied that he was the Christ. He had denied that he was Elijah. He had denied that he was the the long-awaited-for prophet of Deuteronomy 18. And so some of the Jews came to him and they said, Then why are you baptizing? What authority do you have to do this, John, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So this debate could have been over the authority that John had to baptize people, or the effectiveness of his purification rite. But regardless, at some point in the debate, the attention of John's disciples turns to the waning popularity of John the Baptist's ministry to the burgeoning popularity of Jesus's. Verse 26 says, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who was with you? He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. 
This is what you did, John. Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. They're envious. They're jealous of what they are seeing. They are seeing the success in some measure of Jesus' ministry and they're not happy about it because it's taking away from their guy's ministry. In addition, they have not truly understood John the Baptist's message. John had been pointing them to Jesus as the one who is greater than he, but some of his disciples apparently believed that John was greater because he paved the way for Jesus. Look! He whom you bore witness to. You're greater. You've paved the way for Him. So they're envious. This debate they've been engaged in has taken a turn for the worse. And now their covetous hearts are producing an open hostility to Jesus. Now what I want you to see this morning is how John applies the Bible to this situation. This situation where envy is producing open hostility to the success of another, to Christ. It's necessary, I think, that as we all grow in our walk with Christ, we grow in how we apply Scripture to our lives. It's necessary that as we interact with our neighbors, we are able to apply Scripture to their situations, to their struggles, to their sin, ultimately so that we can help lead them to the solution and the Gospel of Christ. We are charged as well to wage a spiritual war against our own sinful flesh. And to do so requires that we become adept at applying the Bible in a holistic way to our life. So let's note how John the Baptist is doing Bible application. Situation, as we saw, is that his disciples are sinning against Christ out of envious hearts. Now, the Baptist could have just said, he could have just pointed them to the Ten Commandments and said, you shall not covet. He could have just left it there, right? And he would have been right in doing that. That would have been an accurate application of Scripture. You are envious, you are coveting, and Scripture says you shall not covet. He could have done that. And he would have been perfectly okay in doing that. But friends, freeing the heart, freeing the heart from its pettiness, from its tendency to get worked up over something as eternally insignificant as how many people one person's ministry has over another. That's what sin often is, right? It's just pettiness. In the grand scheme of the plan of God in salvation and the works He is doing in and for us in creation, it's just petty. Freeing the heart 
from that kind of grip often requires more than just a particular verse that says, you shall or you shall not do this. Often, it requires directing the heart away from foolishness by pointing it to something far greater and far more grand than what it's pursuing. There's nothing more grand, friends, and there's nothing more majestic than the glory of God. There's nothing that will satisfy the heart in a deeper way than God Himself. As one of the early church fathers, Augustine, said, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in You. God can satisfy the heart. And this is what we see John the Baptist doing. He doesn't apply Scripture to His disciples' envy by simply quoting a biblical prohibition. He applies Scripture by pointing their eyes away from the things of the earth and towards the glory of God. And He does so in three ways that we can point to. First, He points them to the glory of God seen in His sovereign control over all things. He wants them to see the sovereignty of God over everything. Look in verse 27 at how he answers them. They're expressing envy, and he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John is drawing from the vast revelation of Scripture that teaches us that there is not one thing that occurs in this world apart from the sovereign rule of God. Nothing. No man possesses anything, as John says, unless it has been given to him. No king has any authority to rule unless it has been given to him by God. No president will ascend to power unless it has been given to him by God. We have nothing apart from the sovereign control of God. Nations, entire nations, do not rise to power and prominence apart from the sovereign hand of God, and they do not crumble apart from the power of God. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 and 15 says this, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows Him His counsel? Whom did He consult? Whom did God consult? And who made Him understand? Who taught Him the path of justice and taught Him knowledge and showed Him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop 
from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales, behold, He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. God is in control of everything. And if then God, in His infinite power, determines something as vast as the geopolitical fates of nations, if He determines that, is it not also the case that whatever little things we may or may not have, whatever Outward successes we may or or may not have are also determined by Him. John here is not just telling His disciples that their complaints are wrong and sinful, sinful. He's helping them to see with their own eyes as they gaze upon the power of God and His sovereign control, He's helping them to see with their own eyes the pettiness of their complaints. Because it becomes petty in light of the majesty of the glory of God. And in so doing, He is driving biblical truth into their hearts where their envy is actually present. But second... He not only points to God's sovereign rule over all things, he points them to the glory of God by illustrating the beauty of Christ's relationship to His people. Again, drawing their hearts away from their envy by giving them this more beautiful picture of Christ and His people. So he continues in verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears Him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So Here John is telling his disciples in a somewhat roundabout way that it is good, it is good that people are following Jesus. And it's good because John is not the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. They need to be following Him. They need to be going after Him. But he also tells them this by giving them a little parable of a wedding. There's a bride, there's a bridegroom, and there's a friend of the bridegroom, what would be the equivalent of our best man. And the best man at a wedding isn't jealous of a bridegroom. We can relate to that in our modern experiences. It's not not as though the the best man is, is grumbling all the time at the wedding because his best friend is getting married. It's not as though he's jealous over the bride. He's happy. He's rejoicing over what he is seeing. Seeing his friend come to his bride and marry her, that's what makes him happy. And John is saying, 
I am the friend. I'm not here for the bride. I'm here to hear my friend the groom say to his bride, I do. And the groom is Jesus. And those who are going after Him are His bride. In this parable, John is illustrating for his disciples the beauty of the relationship between this Jesus, this Christ, and His people. Jesus loves those who are coming after Him as a groom loves His beloved wife. That's how He loves His disciples. And He rejoices over her as He would rejoice at a wedding. This is a picture we find all throughout Scripture. This relationship between God and His people as pictured as one between a groom and a bride. It's a picture that we even find the Apostle Paul using of Christ and the church in Ephesians 5. This marriage context where he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor. You see, at the very end, the end of all things in Revelation 19, when the people of God are now entering into the presence of their Savior, they are rejoicing over the marriage supper of the Lamb. John could have easily, he could have easily just said to his disciples, stop coveting. He's the Christ. He doesn't do that. He sets before their hearts this wedding image so that they themselves may desire God and His Christ more than present temporal glory for themselves. He wants their hearts to see something far better than what they're presently pursuing. There's one last thing that he points them to. One last thing in addition to this, which is the faithful plan of God. Faithful plan of God. He says in verse 30, He, speaking of Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase. This is a statement of necessity. This has to happen. It has to happen that Jesus be glorified. It has to happen that Jesus' name be magnified because it is Jesus who is the Christ. He is the one through whom all of the promises of God to save His people are coming. He's the one who's bringing the fulfillment of all of the things that had been promised by the prophets before Him. If God has been working out a plan since the fall of mankind, when we fell into sin as He has in the very beginning, if He's been working out a plan to save His people, and He's been communicating this plan through His prophets and through the law, then it is Jesus through whom the plan is being fulfilled. 
He's bringing the forgiveness of sins. He's the one who sends the Holy Spirit. He's the one who will renew all of creation, beginning with the renewal of rebel sinners and their transformation into Christ-likeness. He is the one through whom all of these plans find their yes and amen. John is saying, the plan of God to do that doesn't come through me. It comes through Jesus. And to Him be all the glory. He must increase. He is, in a way, answering their complaints by telling them, you need to stop looking at the world in purely earthly terms. Look, look, look at all these people that are following Him. They're leaving you, John. We're not getting all the glory. This is just a purely earthly, sinful way of thinking. He's saying to them, stop looking at the world in purely earthly ways and look up and see the grand plan of God being worked out before your very eyes. Behold that which is better than what you are pursuing now. That's how John is applying biblical truth to their sin problem. He's not just taking a chapter and verse on envy and quoting it to him. He's taking the larger theological truths. He's taking the larger, the larger picture, the story of God's redemption, of God's sovereignty, of His relationship with His people, this plan to rescue them from their sins, and He's setting it before them as a feast to be devoured by their hungry souls. They've been eating on meatless bones, and now He wants to give them a feast. That's what I'm going to set before you. You see, friends, applying Scripture to our lives is not just about having some commandments to obey. That's part of it. Don't misunderstand me there. We should never think that as Christians we are now free to disobey God's clear commands. But the issue is, how does a heart begin to love those commands? It's one thing to have a command. You shall not covet and say, got to do it. Because it's just what you do now as a Christian. It's one thing to obey out of a disdain for the ways of God. It's an entirely different thing to see in the commands a path to life. It's an entirely different thing to see the commands as something beautiful. Obedience then becomes what the Apostle Paul says in Romans. Obedience from the heart. A love for the ways of God. Applying Scripture is much more than just commandments. It's about getting to the heart and setting before the heart something far more desirable than the sin it desires by nature. 
If the heart is just left to its natural state, and it's given a command of God, it will only and always desire to break that commandment. It must see something better behind it. Biblical application, friends, is heart work. It is taking the beauty of the majesty of God. It is taking the eternal hope of God that we have in Christ by virtue of His resurrection. It is taking the self-sacrificing love of Christ, the comforting power of the Spirit. It's taking all of these majestic truths and many more like them and changing what the heart desires with these. In the light of the beauty of God's glory, sin begins to lose its attraction. And so I ask again, does the Bible apply to our modern situations? Does it have something to say to the OCD man? Does it have something to say with someone with postpartum depression? The answer is yes. It may not be a particular verse or a particular commandment. Friends, that is why, at the end of the day, that is why the doctrines of the Christian faith are so vital to our lives. You know, we've, as the men, we've been meeting over the course of this last year and a half and working through Bible doctrine. And when you go through these things, it can seem like, what does this have to do with me while I'm at work? What does the atonement of Christ have to do with me as I'm in the factory working? The answer is that as all of these truths are set before us and enter into our minds and into our hearts, they begin to reshape us so that our desires become that which is pleasing to God. Which becomes absolutely applicable in the workplace. And in the home. Because we're no longer being consumed by the pettiness of it all. We have a greater mission that is set before us that we desire to see accomplished. We see the beauty of the plan of God to redeem for a, a people for Himself from every tribe and language and nation. And we see in our work all of these people I'm talking to you every day. They don't know God. And my heart is set ablaze from the gospel, the glory of Christ. And now I'm going to find a way. I'm going to find a way to apply these truths to their lives. As we learn all of these truths over the course of our years, that's what happens. It reshapes us from within. And as our hearts are reshaped from within, the sins that try to entangle us lose their power. Does the Bible apply to our modern situations? Friends, indeed it does. Because despite all of the changes we may see, despite all of the technological advances, despite the presence of Facebook and Twitter, despite all of these things, we are still human beings with sinful hearts. And it is still the gospel that speaks to those sinful hearts. It is still that old gospel, that ancient gospel 
that has the power to save and redeem from within. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word that you have preserved for us. We thank you, Lord, that above all, we can have confidence and know that your word is sufficient for us all. Your word can speak into the depths of our heart deeper than any other secular worldly counsel that we could ever receive. Because Your Word has the power to penetrate down into the marrow of our souls. And so, Father, we praise You for this very truth, this reality that You have given to Your people the Spirit of God who uses the Word of God to renew us from within and to conform us into the image of Christ so that we might be restored into the image bearers we were made to be. And we can have a hope for the future day to come when Christ returns and brings in His kingdom. And the dominion that we were given over the world is restored. And we all have renewed hearts seeking, seeking the good of one another to the glory of God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.